Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. The Milk Bar Lady is here today. Lady? Uh, Young girl? I would never no, be so disrespectful. In I'm somewhere in between. You can't use girl. In a, you know what? In the era that we're living in now, you can't even jokingly quote around girl. I, I can't be like, my girlfriend, Tozy is you here. You could. I would be so into that. Yeah, but it's now. I it's, I take extra pain. That lady pains. makes me feel so matronly. And like my whole goal in life is to never grow up. And you've built an empire on that uh, goal. You're like, um, okay, uh, I, I could say this. I could say... Uh, our modern day Willy Wonka. Okay. Christina Tozzi is here. I'll take that. See? Yes. Good now? Yes. Um, and uh, who is also my friend, and I'm so glad to have you here. I'm so excited to be this here. Is, it's fun to see you at work. This is fun. I mean, this is so, like, almost not my work. I know. I just so love working so hard. Doing it. Um, thanks for, for doing this. You know, uh, I have so many things that I want to talk to you about. And one of the things I like about getting to talk to a friend. Um, is I can actually just like ask questions that at dinner. Yeah. Like if we were there with my wife and your husband, I'm not going to like start interviewing you. Yeah. You're like, okay, everyone be quiet. I have five questions I need to But ask. now I can do it. So here, here's where I want to start. And and for people who don't know, when I say this is the, the milk bar um, superhuman, I'm it's uh, Christina founded and uh, owns along with David Chang yeah. the milk bar, and uh, which is – um, soon, maybe by the time this is up, they'll probably be in all 50 states. Yes. But, uh, which is uh, changed the way people think about, um, it's not even the term bakery isn't even right. The way people think about dessert in yeah. n- New York City. And not just dessert, but breakfast too now, right? Yeah. I mean, always breakfast with the bagel bombs, but yeah. it feels like coffee's become more of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're right on all those levels. I'm just going to sit and listen to you talk. Because I no. feel like you've got it. But then that, then then there's no reason Thank to do Thank you for getting it, by the way. I feel like you get it. That's what I love you on many levels. You get so many things about the world, but it's very honoring that you get. Well, what we thank do. you. But I, I, you make it manifest. Actually, you don't make it hard to get what Milk Bar <laughs> is. Like that is a thing, and I want to talk to you a lot about voice because your stores, everything that you do related to Milk Bar, has, and it's an, an amazing thing to watch, because at first it was the Mamafuku branded place. And then through that, this identity came that, yes, there's still the imprimatur of the idea of David Chang's sense of quality and mm-hmm. discovery. Mm-hmm. But you built something that has a, a unified tone, which in any art form is really hard to do. Hmm. So I'm, really I'm sure it's something point. you think about. Yeah. Yeah. I, to be honest, when when I think back, Milk Bar will be nine years old this November 2017 which is crazy to think that it's been nine years and I did very I did very little preparation in opening Milk Bar and did very little reflection in year one and year two and it wasn't until I wrote the first cookbook and and even now nine years later I'm I'm I am asked to explain and almost required to explain because when you're the CEO and you're driving this business forward to explain to people what Milk Bar is and why, to, to, to like a new hire, a new hire orientation on up, you're required to actually understand what you did. And that was a very, that, that process is something that I'm still learning now. But in the early days, in year one and year two, there was no business plan. There was no money. 
And so Milk Bar haphazardly, not that it would be any other way, but I say that because it's super, Milk Bar is entirely intentional, but its greatest intention was that there was no intention to it and that it's just so pure and so purely a reflection of me and the people that were crazy enough to see what I was doing and come and like knock on the door of Milk Bar at 5 a.m. Like the, the people that have helped me build Milk Bar and join my team are... It's just such a natural, pure draw. And that is the secret sauce, man. Like that's the secret to our success. Now it's harder because we have a little bit more money and we have more responsibility and we have more time and we're required to think about it. And that almost, I feel, is a harder job and jeopardizes the purity of it more so. Yeah, the moment you you look at it, it could disappear. The moment you look at the thing, right, it can disappear sort of. And, and, um, or was it like the opposite of Schrodinger's cat? But it, uh, but like the, the moment you look at it, it's gone in a way. Ha- asking you to explain milk bar is like asking you to explain who you are. Or, yeah, or and I'm yourself. like, I don't freaking know. I've been looking at myself every day in the mirror, wondering what the heck. But but it did explode. In, in, I, I want to go backwards actually, because your origin story to me is superhero like in a way, and so I want to start there. Which is, can you talk about? Because a lot of people think that you have to have a plan, mm-hmm. a really detailed mm-hmm. plan for how your life is mm-hmm. going to play out. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to take this step and this step, and then I'm going to have an empire. But it doesn't feel to me like you were empire building. And if you were, uh, like, can you just talk about who you were when you came to New York, how you first came to know Dave Chang, and what led to you, who I think you had kind of like limited professional experience to become pastry chef at what was meant to be like the hottest new restaurant in New York like who were you like who was Christina Tozzi then and how did that stuff happen so in advance of moving to New York like the things that I know about myself that have never changed are that I was raised to be super hardworking and super determined like can't wasn't a word we were allowed to use at home and my both of my parents raised myself and and my sibling my sister uh with this mentality of like you don't feel sorry for yourself you don't you do and we were never treated as like boy or girl i'm confident that my dad wished we were like boys and my mom is not a super girly girl she in in and of herself was like a female in a very male dominated profession of accounting in virginia which is like a very good old boy what town in Virginia? Um, I grew up in Springfield, and she. So there, I think there was like a, a mishmash of being raised by parents that didn't make excuses, never allowed for an excuse to be made. Um, that very much just sort of set the tone of how I thought about or how I understood myself and my place in the world from like getting a third grade report card to going to college and thinking that I was going to study and be a grown up. And there was this weird intersection of learning to be super yielding as a kid and discovering, unlike my last year of college, my junior year of college, I was like, oh, I'm about to graduate. I don't really want to be a grown up. But also, I'm so sick of following the rules where I just like took as many credits as possible, graduated early. And like that for me is like the moment that my life changed was the day that I was like, I don't want to be a good student anymore. And I don't want to be a grown up, Um, but I was raised to be put on this path to sort of to do all these things. And 
You mean that high achieving thing? You had never internalized it that whole time, really. It I was just never it was taught. To, I was never taught to question the rules. I was I was taught to never question authority. I was raised to be a very obedient, very 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 obedient person. I'm confident. I'm not confident. I know for a fact that I got into a little bit of trouble as a teenager, but like I think it's probably like relatively PG rated for what kids get into generally. But I was raised to be super yielding and to not question authority, which is so oxymoronic if you think about what I do and and my self discovery. Well, yeah, you of explode it. into a room now. You're not a yielding. No, you're a very you're uh, you have the ability. You're very, you're kind and you want people to be happy and yeah. all that stuff. But Which I, also traits that was that were raised in me, like both of my parents are from the Midwest. Their their mothers are like the most kind, gentle. Like I want to feed you, I want to care for you. But they were also the kind of grandma. They're kind of grandmas that are like, let's sit down and play Uno. I'm gonna crush you. So but fine. they were also the kind of grandmas that were like, eat more cookies here, here, here. But they were also the kind of grandmas. One of my grandmas was like a farm grandma, and she would real talk you so hard if you weren't wearing like socks in the basement or whatever it was. What like, would the was, real talk be? She would just go off at you. She you get in trouble basically and you didn't it was the it was the person in your life that wasn't meant to be the authority like your parents were supposed to be the authority your grandparents were supposed to be pushovers uh, I just real talked to someone the other day because they didn't they wore open toed shoes on set yeah oh yeah same that's that's she socks was like you're a, gonna get pneumonia I'm and like what are you doing basement. that's such a rookie move you know but so, so I was you were raised, this person yeah I was raised to be super yielding and very rule following um, and just to never make excuses. That's just the way, that was the place that I was put into the world at. So when you were 15 and 16 and, and getting into PG trouble, but knowing, okay, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to learn something practical. Yes. Uh, learn how to be a translator. Yeah. Learn how to, yeah. uh, practical skills. Practical skills. Did you allow yourself to, did you have a dream life of a different reality? Did you notice, oh, I really like color? Like, cause of the things about, right. Did you notice, I really like color i i like this kind of magic i love sweet things Mm. how did it was there any of that going on or was it like a sudden awakening things that i knew were that um i knew i loved to bake that was something that had always been in me my grandmother's baked you baked for every occasion like baking was our love language for any and every occasion. So just giving and caring for people through feeding them and not just feeding them food, feeding them dessert. I mean, it's the greatest gift was always built into me. Being super artistic and crafty was always built into me. So that was just part of who you were. I was just part of who I was, but the distinction was that those were amazing things that you did in your free time after you got home from being a grown up. Um, and both of my parents were t- were the kind of grown-ups that were super passionate about their profession. So in their world, they were like, love what you do was always the message that was given to us. But they really meant like, love being a doctor and caring for people. Love what we want you to love do. Love what we want way. you to do. Or like, we work really hard. You work hard to like better your next generation. And so they wanted, I think that they hoped at that time that my passion would be in... A, 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 a more typically professional space. And so you, you, uh, because you said, as you say, you were yielding in a way, you, you didn't question it until you got out of college. No, I didn't question it till the, like, till Amazing. the very end of college. And I realized, oh my God, I am about to be a grown up and 
and that feels suffocating to me. And I could feel, I had this like itchy burning thing where I could feel that all I desperately wanted to do, the thing that drove me the the most was, was the moments of creativity, like the moments of the arts and crafts projects that I got into when I was in college were insane. Like I like was what? like, I would drive around on um, garbage night to find furniture and things that people were throwing away. And then I'd go into like a hardware supply store and buy a bunch of paint samples and cut them up and find this old table that I would refix. And like, I would go deep, like multi-week and deep. And that's when you would feel alive. That's when I would feel alive. But you didn't at the time. And I, I, this is really crucial. And I called this show the moment at the beginning because these inflection points, when people find the moments that make them feel alive yeah. are incredibly powerful. And we can we can decide to like embrace them or to run from them. Yes. Um, it's like, you know, these high moments or these really low moments when you have to have these moments of discovery. Yes. And, but a lot of people think they're... Um, they would know at a young age, oh, I, if I'm an artist, I, someone would have told me by the time uh, I was 18. No, like in an in, in an interesting way, my only dream as a kid that I ever really held on to because it repeated itself, it wasn't just like the dream that you said was your dream to like appease your parents, your grandparents, was to have a bakery and the working title was Cookies, Cookies, Cookies. I Still really good, by the way. But you want to know why that was my dream? And this like gets another layer deeper. It was equal parts because it, it was equal parts because I loved to bake for people, but it was also equal parts because I was like fascinated with like working the line and the cash register and punching in sales and making change. My mom's an accountant. I studied math largely in college, um, along with some romance languages. And so it was this fascination. It wasn't to be a pastry chef or to be a baker. It was to have a bakery. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. To have this communal place where people could come in. I could feed them. I would have to ring up their orders. There was like this business sense to it, like playing shop. It wasn't just baking. It was like playing shop and creating. That was always in your head. Did you tell people? Oh, yeah. And people to this day will that have known me for a very long time or like worked next to me when I was like working at a temp agency. There's a security guard that I used to sit next to all day. He sends me an email like a year ago and was like, hey, cookie buddy. And I'm like, who is this person? And it's some security guard that I sat next to every day for like a summer break between college and freshman remembered. and college sophomore. And he's like, I see that Cookies, Cookies, Cookies has, is actually has a new name and it's Milk Bar because it was the thing. If you knew me, you knew me because I baked for you. That's did, how you knew wait, me. Wait, did you send him something? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, for me, then my move is like, what's your address? Right, you did, and I don't right? just send you something. I send you all of the things. Like, oh, you get so cookie awesome. bombed, which is now like cookie cake truffle. Well, yeah, you cookie bombed us bombs. just now when you came here. You, it's just you a necessity. You don't show us. up empty-handed. No. In, yes, I, that's something certainly you But and... so it was like a dream that then became – that manifested into this moment of of – I don't want to, oh my God, I don't want to be a grown up. Here we go. And I moved to New York. I knew I didn't want to be a grown up. I knew that I didn't want to get sick of a job. And the only thing I could come up with that I could do every day without getting bored is make cookies. Do, when, how old were you? Oh, uh, 18, 19, 19, 20. After, because so you graduate college early and mm-hmm. you're like, I'm going to New York. Yeah, bye. Were you, were you always a leader among your friends? Like, because I was going to ask you about the split between the artist, business person, leader, because you're you have to be all those 
yeah. things now. I think if I just spent a weekend with two of my closest girlfriends from like childhood, and I think if you asked my friends, our group of friends were leaders generally, but within the group of leaders, I was always the wild card. I was the I was the one that like cut my hair super short and it made me look like a boy when everyone else had long hair. And it wasn't being different to be different. It was being different for because I just desperately did not want to fit in, which is different than being different. I wasn't trying to make a statment. I just needed the reminder that I was different. And that For I your marched. own self, you didn't yeah, want to conform. Yeah, that I marched to the you beat of my you don't own want, drum. It wasn't about someone else no. noticing, oh, Christina's different. It was, I'm not going to be defined yeah. Other than by the way in which I define myself. Exactly. And I so I think in that space, I was a leader in my group of friends, but I wasn't like the ringleader, but I wasn't in a group of friends where there was a ringleader that I followed either. You Does just were, yeah, completely. Yeah, you were just your own thing. Yeah. And you had to be into that if you, yeah, exactly. And so you come to New York. Yeah. And are, at this point, you'd done a lot of baking for yourself and like you knew you were good at it. I knew I loved it and I knew I loved it and I knew that it made people happy. The concept of being good at it or bad at it hadn't entered into my thought because I moved to New York to attend culinary school. I knew from like being put on this path of like getting, being educated that I had a ton of this like home baking prowess and at the end of college, I started working in a restaurant as like a hostess and a server. And I begged the kitchen to let me be a prep cook. And they would give me this AM prep cook shift with like a, whoever is a prep cook in like mountain town of Virginia. Was it like building like, mise en place essentially? It was doing like very big. Ba- yes, right? good job, bravo. Um, it was hanging out with like the... Weirdo, I love weirdos. Like I love the weird. It was hanging out with the weirdos in the morning, doing the work that nobody. But else I'm saying, is it that do. chopping yeah, stuff? Like where you're chopping, setting up. The... It's like standing in a room of blue light to pick crab shell out of crab to make crab cakes later. I always think of <laughs> there's. I love. I love. Um. Uh. Some people books. Uh. Bill Buford wrote this book called Heat. Yes, love it. Where he spends part of that time yeah. as like a morning prep. That's all you're doing. Cook. It's like and the, it's, it, it's fascinating you either love it or there. you hate it. You embrace the monotony of it because it's not monotonous at all. But that wasn't doing dessert stuff, pastry no, stuff. No, it was just doing prep kitchen stuff. Yeah. I was just fascinated. And you liked it. So it didn't, that didn't dim your interest. It, no, but it didn't give me the confidence either. It like gave me enough to put on a resume to get into culinary school. But I knew that I wanted to, I knew that I would be a good learner, but I knew that I wanted the educational backbone before I just threw myself out. So you didn't world. go think, oh, I'm going to stage somewhere or do any of that first. I basically was like, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm a pusher. I'm, I felt behind because I spent three years right. going to college. And I said, I'm going to go to culinary school and I'm going to go and stage at a restaurant at night. One, because I don't know if I'm good or bad. I don't. I just know that I know very little. And I, it's easier for me to justify working somewhere for free. One, because most people will let you work somewhere for free if you ask and you show up. And two, I want to understand like what my value and my worth is before I come in pretending like I know so what you that is. so you come to do you tell your parents what you're doing and were they okay with it mm, I think I told my mom a few days before I moved to New York that I was going what it did was she some... think wait what did they think uh... wait, what did they think you were gonna do <laughs> I think that um 
Because that's well, there's really a interesting. few things. I don't. I think my mom had been to New York like once, right around the time like Taxi Driver came out, and she had been to New York once for like an accounting. Oh no, conference she thought it was a demon. She thought it was like Square. the demon place. New yeah, York? she literally. We had a conversation because I knew that it would not be well received, but I also knew that it was my decision. Like I went to college, I checked that box, and now I'm on my own. I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking for permission either. But I also know it's not going to be well received. And the conversation that we had was, okay, so what are you going, like, okay, well, where are you going to live? And I said, well, I'm going to find an apartment. Uh, and even that's foreign because in New York, finding an apartment is totally different than finding a place to live in Virginia. And it was, um, okay. And I was like, it's gonna be in walking distance from school and I'm going to get a job, like I'm, I'll get a job to pay the rent and I'm going to, you know, like stage in a restaurant in my free time. And she, God bless her, was not like, what free time? Because that's not the kind of woman she is. There's always free time in a day. But her biggest concern was, so you're going to get a job sometime at night? Like, what? Safety. how are you going to get home right. when the sun goes down? That's literally what she asked me. I have that question in my head. How, what are you going to do when the sun goes down? Like, how are you going to get home? It's and a fair I said, question. I'm pretty sure I'm going to walk. And she was not happy with that response. And I, But I couldn't afford to take a cab, and I don't think to this day I took one. But I lived on Elizabeth Street between Broom and Grant. Even for native New Yorkers, like, it is hard with daughters. And this is the one area going back to the beginning of the thing. Like, uh, And it is um, one way in which I'm probably not evolved enough. But, like, if my, like my daughter last night, she's 17, and she was like, I'm going to walk home from five blocks away. And it was 1030. I was like, I just don't think you are going to walk home by yourself at 1030. She said, but I'm 17 and it's five blocks away. And I've lived in the city my whole life. That's a funny thing though, where there there are these moments, like some of my friends' parents are like, you know what? I knew you would. I knew that you weren't, I knew that you wouldn't get eaten alive when you moved to New York. A lot of people could look at you and say, oh, she's never going to make it. But one of my friend's dads was like, God, no. You you had true grit. There was no way you were going. Like awesome. there was no way. Did you, you said you didn't ask them for money? So did you had you saved the money for culinary school? I was working in, in this restaurant in Virginia, and uh, in overachieving form, like I had a four bedroom apartment that cost two hundred and eighteen dollars a month for rent, and in I Virginia. was in Virginia, and I was working at this restaurant. I was serving, being a server and by night, doing and doing a prep morning, with yeah. my day. And I would just crush it in tips because I would I'm like quadruple seat me, like let's go, dude, let's dance. I'll right. run this whole restaurant. And I didn't spend a lot of money because like what am I doing? I'm like foraging for through other people's garbage for my next hot piece of furniture. Like I'm not spending money. Right. So I saved Amazing. up the money. You did, you saved the money to put yourself through. Yeah, school. but I didn't have a ton of to like get an apartment and all that, and I didn't have a ton to go to need otherwise. And it's that super was inspiring, helpful. Christina. Yeah, well, I my mean, parents totally had money saved that. from college too, right? Like they had a little college fund, so there was help there where it was like, I don't need a car. They had like the money saved for... for to put you through college exactly. itself. Yeah, which is a huge gift. And I didn't spend all of it because I was like, I'm getting out of here and I'm getting out of here quick and Brilliant. I don't need a car. I'm going to ride my bike I, and all these sorts of things. Like... Everyone's in such a hurry to like get on this path and grow up, and there's like such beauty and like the simplicity of pursuit. So you didn't have a car at college. No, what do you need right. a car for, man? There you go. Yeah, no, but it's also a beautiful thing. Like um, I always say, the fact that I was my father could put me through college. I did not get out of college with any debt. 
Ditto. is an incredible gift because it allows oh you God. the freedom to figure out who you are. It's if you had $50,000 or $80,000 worth of debt, it's a different conversation. It's so true. You have the you have the freedom of discovery and that's something that my parents gave to me from from raising that money and saving that money. I of course thought I wanted to go to like NYU and they were like, "Yeah, no." Sure. Yeah. Right, you'll go low. That's never going to happen because they were adamant of giving the gift of the freedom when you were done with college, which is a big. And I took advantage. It's a big deal, and, and not that people the people who have debt can find other ways to chase their For dreams sure. too. And most people are in that situation. But I always do think one of the reasons I was able to figure out this my own path yeah. was I didn't have that on my show. I just didn't yeah. have it on my back no. as you didn't have that. Pati- no, it was particular like in thing. state school. Keep it like it's all about what you put into it. College. Everyone thinks you gotta go to the best college. I am like such a believer in like it's about what you bring to the classroom every single day. It's not about like, I know there's networking, there's all these other things, but you don't have to go to the fanciest college. You don't have to go to the fanciest culinary school. It's about what you bring in every single okay, day. Okay, we're gonna skip for one second. Ugh. So it's not, when you're hiring for all these different jobs, does the culinary, does like the fancy school matter to you? Does the fancy culinary school, if you're hiring uh, any of those positions, how much do you look at that pedigree stuff? It gets you, it definitely secures an interview for you, but we hire the person. We don't hire the resume. Like if you've got a great resume, you're guaranteed a callback in an interview, Yes. but you're not guaranteed a job because it's about who you are as a person that you bring in through the doors that sells us on you. And someone someone with an unorthodox resume who didn't go to the the best culinary Mm -hmm. school, but who gets amazing recommendations from people or a personal yeah. call to you, you'll yeah. meet that person too. Right? Yeah, for sure. And then they can fight it. And then it's like, yeah, well. For me, anything, if anything, my, my trajectory once I moved to New York and went to culinary school was so, um, was, was so not a straight line that I'm far more intrigued by people that have, that are well-rounded on their resume and not just pros in one field. Cause if you're going to be, on my team, I'm going to ask so much more of you than whether or not you know how to make like a pat sucre or a great smooth pastry cream. I can teach anyone that that's that's interested. I don't care if you've learned it from someone else. I care about how you think about the world and how you think about work ethic and what's important to you and not that you look good on a piece of paper. That's great. That makes total sense to me and totally jives with like who you yeah. are as a, a human. So you come here, you, you go to the culinary school. Yeah. Do you get a job at, at, at night? Yeah, I get a job at night. So I, I worked again in the front of house because no one would hire me. I had no kitchen experience. No one would pay me. So I had I got a stage at Boulay. Um, working in their pastry kitchen. Which was uh, at the time, I mean, it we just closed. One star. of the most important restaurants in New York. So you were staging, which means working as a trainee. Working as a trainee know, for free. In one of the best restaurants in New York. Yep. And then I also had a job uh, on some evenings working as, I was a reservationist, i.e. they wouldn't even let me stand in the front of the restaurant where someone could see me. I sat in a basement and answered phones. To a hostess, to a maitre d', of a restaurant on Spring Street and 6th Avenue, Aqua Grill. Um, and I did both of those things until I graduated school, and then I got a job as a full-time pastry cook at Boulay. Wow, that's amazing. What did you learn in that kitchen? Oh, I learned so many things. I mean, when you work, it's kind of like getting your ticket punched at a big restaurant that is has all the hype, has all the pedigree. But honestly, for a ship that big, there's so much more 
to learn if you assert yourself. Like, I learned how to, uh, it was like a battlefield there. Yeah, were like, you nervous? Like, uh, wait, I, I'm I, confident going into it. Uh, I don't know. Actually, that's a really good question. Yeah, like, what did that feel like to go into Boulay as a kid from Virginia who just, like, lands in New York? I mean, I definitely made my fair share of, like, uh, mistakes in the kitchen, but I, I knew I gave it my all every day. I mean, I had these two Dominican brothers that also worked in the pastry kitchen and they would just haze me. They'd haze me hard. Yeah, so how did that woman, I mean, I've heard these stories. They haze so me how, hard. How would they haze you? Like what, what form did they that They would take? just make fun of me and, and like te- tease me, but not in like a loving way in like a, we don't want you here kind of way. <laughs> And um, that, like, wasn't new to me. I was, like, a chubby, redheaded kid with a bowl cut growing up. Like, I was fine being, like, being on the inside, but but purposefully putting myself in the outcast position. You were, just, you were like John Denver in the kitchen? That's yeah, what I'm picturing well, right I, Yeah, I and like, I basically yeah. would just like, I would do anything and everything for anyone or everyone, and I just made it my goal of like, I might not be the strongest, but I'm going to be the one that comes in first and leaves last. Like, I just went to the principle defining things of like, how do you show that you want it? Right? Would they fuck with you? Like, so there was a hazing. Would they screw up your stuff? Oh, they would totally these of screw Carma- up my stuff. Like, I hear these stories of Carmelini's kitchen back then, and they would destroy people. They would totally screw up my stuff, or they'd put me on a station they knew I didn't need that I they knew I didn't know how to work, um, and would just haze me. They'd basically put me on a station to be able to kick me off like ten minutes into service. And all of that was perfectly fine with me. Like, I'm going in humble, right? So why would I go in pretending that I know how to do everything? But, but and I wait, think that's I one of the biggest take it. mistakes. I would not be able to take it. Like, I, I would have to flip it on them quickly. I know that I would have to um, find a way to gain, like, um, a certain kind of footing. Like, how did you, like, walking there, I'm picturing you now, like, okay, you weren't taking cabs anywhere. So I'm picturing you, like, having to walk with your head down, like, okay, I'm going to go to the boule kitchen, and these guys are going to beat the shit out of yeah. me. Yeah. Did you have a smile? Did I you put a smile on your face? For sure. Well, I think I had a serious face. I wasn't crying. Right. I never cried at work, but they, uh, for me, I live in my own universe. Like, in my head, when I'm doing what matters to me, I don't need someone else to tell me I was happy. Like, as crazy as that might sound, I was happy. And I remember the day where they went to haze me. And and because I was so much in my own head, I wasn't working to gain their approval. I was just working to work. And I remember the day they put me on a station. And um, because I was so in my own head, I was just doing what I thought I normally did. And I remember I looked up. I sent these dishes out. I looked up. And the two of them are standing across from me with, like, leaning in on each other like just nodding their heads arms crossed impressed and they started like then making fun of how good I did and I looked at them and I was like uh, what I don't what's going on and they were like oh okay like now wow. we okay we see what you've got and it felt like every other day to me because it wasn't about well you I remember it it didn't really feel like hate. every other day because well, I you remember, remember the moment you do yeah, remember it. I was like wow I did that fast or I did that well or I did that better than yes. every other day but it did, was because I just, I'm not looking for your approval. I'm here to learn. Did you ever get your like pretty woman moment though when you became rich and famous to go buy them and be like, big mistake? Uh, <laughs> I mean, so what ended up happening was once like that moment happened and the corner turned, um, I worked alongside them, right? Like oh, so I, you became friends. I did everything from like burning my fingertips so I could remove the souffle ring as fast as them. And also like in my pursuit, I was like, all right, well, 
this, these are good, like human skills. Right. And so I was like, I'm going to like get into these, to their heads because I don't need them to be my friends. We're so different as people, but we're so similar because we love being here that, um, I just want to know them more. I want to understand them more as people. I want That's to understand who were their kids. They were so into the Red Sox, and that was the year that the Red Sox and the Yankees were in the World Series. And like I went, I went in deep with them, and got would I just owned everything they owned and got rowdy. And like I, I just think that is my favorite life example of in running a big kitchen now and a big company, you're like, I don't need you to be best friends with everyone that you work with, but you need to have a respect for the people that you work with because you're all here. You may disagree on everything else, but the one thing you see eye to eye on is that this is an incredible opportunity or this is a great place to work or your connection is through the connection of where you work. So why wouldn't you want to bond with the people that you're spending God knows, 90 hours a week. And how long did you end up working with them after? And I'll just say for the people listening who are going to write, Christina got it so close. Don't worry about it. They were in the American League Championship Series. Oh, sorry. Not the World Series. You don't have to write in. Don't write in about it. I'm sorry. It's so close. It's like right there. And it felt to all of us like it was the World Series. It might as well have been. Exactly right. In my memory, it might as well have been. It might as well have been the fucking World Series. It didn't matter. It, and then the team that won that won the World Do Series. Not write in. So it didn't matter. So how long did you end up working with those dudes for? Two years, two and a half years. And how long had it been? Between did... stage and then pastry cook. And I, like, when I was there, I, my biggest success stories in working there was I wasn't looking around for someone to tell me what to do. I was looking around for what needed to be done and how I could take more off of someone else's plate and put it on my own plate. So when you that's realize stuff like that, that's genius what you just said. It's like the kind of thing that um, people write down. Obviously, you've written this stuff down. But did, did you, at the time, were you keeping a journal for yourself? No. When you would make like a... I wish I did. When you would think of a thought, I wish you did too. Yeah. I would love to read it. It'd be so but funny. When you... <laughs> inspiring though, also like I think elevating because... Like, even just having that distinction in your head of, like, well, I'm going to figure out what I need to... All that stuff is so valuable. Yeah. But you don't have... I'm the kind of person where in the moment, I don't have those moments. I'm not great at self-reflection in the moment. And I have to remind myself that on a daily basis. Because when you're leading, like, an army of 300 people, you got to remember to slow the heck down and, like, chill out and celebrate those moments. Because you don't realize when you're in the middle of, like, a Lifetime movie or a... Like, you don't realize that that moment is going to to be a moment I didn't realize the day that I that that service started and I for some reason crushed it even though every day it kind of felt the same the day that they stepped back and folded their arms I remember it in my memory but at that point I thought I was going to remember everything yeah you just remember I didn't realize that it would be a thing are you kidding me I didn't realize that I would have gone on to pursue and to be on this windy path to be where I am today. Well, yeah. I didn't know where I was you, going. I just knew I was happy you, in my pursuit. It's really valuable and you learn it as you go when you're young, really young. I mean, you're still very young. But when you're super young and you're on this sort of train, you don't stop and notice those moments. But I've, I've like trained myself in the last five or six years to go like, wait, if you have a, a win of some sort, you have to find a way to celebrate it, yeah. feel it. Own it and then move on. Otherwise, you never, um, you're just moving. You're just moving. We'll be back after this. Word about ZipRecruiter. Listen, I, um, I have to hire people, people to fill my writer's room, all the crew positions. I know that hiring is 
hard work. Uh, it's kind of the most important thing, or certainly one of the most important things you do in your day if you're in any kind of a management position. And you know, if you're hiring, you really should be dealing with ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter has this thing called smart matching technology, which actively notifies qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting. So you receive the best possible matches. Other hiring sites uh, don't do anything like that, which is why ZipRecruiter is different. They don't depend on the right candidates finding you. Like ZipRecruiter finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. You know, this way you don't have to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. This step blew me away. 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just a day, in one day. Uh, and the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish all in one place. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And look, right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Yeah, I said free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. Look, one more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. You're at Boulay, you're at, yeah. in one of the best restaurants in New York as pastry chef. And what happens next? And at the time, were you thinking I want my own bakery still? No, not even. Like I... So that childhood dream had I, receded. Yeah, it, it never, it wasn't a dead thing. It was just a matter of, it wasn't... It wasn't like, oh, I know my end goal here. Everything that I do up to this moment needs to be in pursuit of that or leading this to that. This is crucial, yeah. It was, knowing, it was just knowing that that was part of my makeup and something I was fascinated with as a kid. And this became my, all right, I know what I can do every day without getting sick of it. I'm just trying to solve for like one thing at a time. And my solve at that point was, all right, you need a job. You need to start like entering into real grown-up dumb and what does that look like on your terms? And on my terms, it was just to be a pastry chef. Because it made you happy. Because it made me happy. And being a pastry chef in New York to be, I'm competitive. So it's not just to be the pastry chef. It's to be like the best pastry chef and to like crush the entire game. And in order to do that, I was like, I need to get educated and I need to go and work for the best chef that I could, that, that is out there. I want to go and like bark with the big dogs and be best in class. And that was my only pursuit. It wasn't to open a bakery because that felt like some like ho-hum, Ohio, Virginia business, not something that you would do in New York City. If you were going to be a great pastry person in New York City, you are, a, you are the pastry chef of a four-star restaurant. That's right. what you that makes are. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think about it. The only like artisanal thing then really was Magnolia, which... It was a cupcake. Were, I mean, yeah, right. with, with all due respect. No, that's what I'm saying. That was, yeah. though, if I were thinking about what that was in New York, there wasn't this thing in between. Mm -mm. If you were going to go to somebody's party and you wanted to bring something nice, yeah. you would go to William Greenberg or you'd go to Magnolia, yeah. Yeah. depending on kind of what you wanted to do. This yeah. this space that you've now occupied was not it didn't in exist. existence. No. And if, and you if you're wanted... like me, you don't even like buttercream. Magnolia is not for you. It's not, a, it's not, yeah, it's not the right place, but... Um, but for me, it was to be like the best high-end version of this pursuit, right? Like if I were going to be a mathematician or a doctor, I would try and be like the best doctor, not the, I, 
and at this, yes, you would try to be the top person. Yeah. MIT, but it, w- w- I want to, um, when you were doing that, were you already starting to get into a process for yourself of uh, making concoctions, creations of, of your own? When you were the pastry chef, were you able to introduce stuff onto the menu? No. At, at Boulet. Boulet, I was like an executioner of someone else's vision. It was not... Confections until, is the yeah, word I was looking at, for. Yeah. Um, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't for a few years, until a few years after that I learned to think, this is going to sound a little silly, but to think for myself in a professional kitchen setting to be an imagineer of your own yeah because back then crushing a profession in the kitchen was not about like only david boulet would do that only thomas keller has the right to that it was only the head chef that had that vision you were just someone's soldier and i was more than happy to just be someone's soldier in pursuit of my craft yeah like for the love of the game and pursuit of my craft and back then, you're also short-sighted enough to, like, you don't understand more than that because you don't it, – it hasn't occurred to you. You don't have the capacity when you're so focused on honing your craft. It's not even about the imagination or the imaginary. You're just trying to learn all of this cool shit from someone else. And so how did you then hook up – like, so then what was the path that got so you I, to Mamafuku Co? So I left um, Boulay. Because I had gone as far as I was really going to go. I was burnt. To be quite frank, I was burnt out. I was for a very long time working six days a week. You had to work a double on your sixth day, which meant you were working from 7 a.m. until 2 a.m. on your sixth day to get your seventh day off. But while I was doing that, I was done with school and I was bored because then I find like would have my seventh day off. And so I would start dabbling in stuff. I was at that time um, an editorial assistant at Savoy magazine because they would let me come and do it for free one day a week and I had like a Monday off or a Tuesday off so I'd ride my bike up to 23rd and Park which is where their offices were and so basically even though I was like working in this restaurant environment there was a part of me that was just curious about the rest of the food world um I knew that Boulet wasn't going to be my forever home and there was a part of me that knew that that wasn't like my dessert vibe I just it was where I was learning the most On your day off in New York or the nights that you didn't you know got would you go eat in the city were you No I didn't in, have any money So you never could do it no. You weren't out so soon. No, you, I had no money. So your window into that world was like when you would go work at the... No, you're like standing at Garde Manger or standing at the meat station and being like, ooh, Kobe beef, ooh, foie gras. Like your experience to great food is through that and through like the New York Times Wednesday section because like the internet was a thing. Food on the internet was not a thing. Right. I would save up my I would save up money to just like pay the rent. My like exposure to food was like I worked the cheese station sometimes and so I learned about 50 different cheeses cuz you work when you work at a high-end restaurant, you that's your job. Your job is to cut 50 pieces of cheese beautifully. <laughs> and so you like taste a little bit of the scrap or this sure. or that, but that was my exposure. I would I would go to the New York Public Library and rent free videos 
for like because that's what i couldn't afford anything that was my thing that's i went to like movies in, in the park like it's just the most beautiful moments because you're so thoughtful did about you build a crew of friends at that time no the kitchen. you were still like alone you were still like lonely in new york i didn't move to new york to make friends and i didn't do many things in life to make friends and my the friends thing were was the Dominican show. brothers right oh they became your friends yeah they were my friends my friends were the people that i worked with and whoever like the rotating crew of dudes working the line at Boulay. Those were my boys for however long they lasted or otherwise. Um, no, the rest of the time I was just like a lone wolf and I was happy to be a lone wolf. That was like, the, those were the moments. But in my free time, I would find these other odds and ends jobs in food and in cooking. And I liked dabbling in other spaces because it allowed me to understand the world of food more. So I would cater. I would be like, I assisted a food stylist for a very long time on and off. Um, and when I realized that I was like just burnt to a crisp at Boulay, I basically just spent a year picking up all kinds of random jobs. Like I would consult. I was like the consulting pastry chef of this restaurant on um, Washington Square Park. And I would do all these things from like food writing to catering to food photography. And you had this cred because you were a pastry chef at Boulay. So that allowed you and you had you'd done some networking so yeah. that you could help get you these gigs. Yeah. Is that how you met Chang? So I, as I was coming out of this like working odd jobs thing, the thing that I realized was I missed being in the kitchen and I knew I needed my next like kitchen to go into. And I had this moment with myself where I was like, okay, well, I need more experience. I want to go work for another chef that doesn't necessarily have to be like fine and fine dining because that's I understood after two years of doing it that that wasn't exactly my spirit and my style and I said I to myself I think my style lives somewhere within like the Americana of desserts that Claudia Fleming and Karen Damasco were doing at the time at Gramercy and at Kraft or like the kind of kooky crazy understanding how to be like tongue-in-cheek with food at WD-50. Right, Wiley's, yeah. And so I went and did the same thing, just walked up to WD-50, offered to work for free, and then ended up, and did, and ended up over time getting a full-time job as a pastry cook, worked my way up. And I met Dave through Wiley. And then he asked you to come set up the pastry program for them originally? or No, to become... I was working as a cook at WD-50 and um, in my free time, I was, I was, uh, it was more, a little bit more humane of conditions at WD-50. Um, I knew I didn't want to like work for a food magazine and I knew I didn't really want to be a food stylist and I had like ticked off all the things. I thought maybe I'll be this, this could be cool. Sure. I ticked all those things off. Um, and I didn't really have an idea of what else I wanted to do to explore this food world. And so I basically just went up to Wiley uh, at, on my quote-unquote Friday, which is usually like a Tuesday if you're a cook. And I said, Chef, I have my two days off. And like, what do you need help with? Like, how can I help you? What are you working on? What kind of product? I want something to do. Like, I'm, bo I'm not bored in pursuit of my craft, but I have these two days and I don't want to – I want to do something with them. And he kind of was perplexed and was like, okay, and would start giving me like recipe books to type down. He talk about journaling. He'd keep a journal of every single test he That's ever amazing. did. Yeah. And over time, he said, actually, I need help with the health department because we're using this cooking technique and I need to figure out how to write this hazard analysis plan. 
Was it like sous vide stuff of like yeah. you know, having to do the sous vide cooking? He was yeah. like, they don't know. They just know that I, they don't know how to write one either. Necess- or they, whatever. I have no direction. Because it was the and bathing that stuff in the water. And they're not willing to give me any direction. So I said, okay, I'll figure it out. And uh, over several months figured it out. And basically awesome. Dave got in the same trouble with the health department. And uh, Wiley was just like, will you go help out a friend of mine? And I had heard about Dave and I had gone to lunch at Noodle Bar a few months before. That was like when I worked at WD-50, I was moving up the food chain because you got paid a little bit more money as a pastry cook. And I remember saving up my money to go eat at Noodle Bar for lunch one day. And did it blow your mind? Yeah. I, I loved that it was – it blew my mind on many levels. It blew my mind that it was – this tiny like hallway alley that it was it was impossible to get into one of the reasons i went for lunch was because it was impossible to get into at night it was crazy to me that that many people were that obsessed with this like it wasn't even a hole in the wall like it's not a hole in the wall bar it's somewhere in between that made no sense it wasn't in a neighborhood you necessarily wanted to be in did you go to the first you went yeah, before it the moved the first one yeah me too and it was it was good it was it wasn't even good food it was insanely delicious food that you wanted to lick your plate clean with but there was nothing fanciful about it it was like food for the people and that resonated with me and that, yeah, me too. I mean, that's, uh, I've talked, that, that was a yeah. life-changing thing for me. But, Get me um, going. So I met Dave. I, th- I hadn't met Dave when I went up for lunch. He was there and I like observed but you didn't this go say man in his element. No, just because I was like a cook at WD-50 then. But months later, Wiley said, hey, will you go help my friend Dave? And I said, yeah, sure, of course. I'll go up there and help him on my day off. And, and had you heard his reputation? I mean, you'd heard the reputation. Yeah, and I observed it. Which Dave and I have it. talked about I, it on the podcast. And to be honest, I observed it. Like we joke, I joke where I'm like, I met you about six months before you met me. Because I met you right. when I went in for lunch and saw the you crazy saw? things that you did. And as much as I remember them, none of them jarred me. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> he just really cares. He really, I'm into really that. gives he a shit, He just really guy. cares. Um, and it was, uh, Dave basically just hired me in this very basic consulting uh, from a consultant standpoint to just help him write this hazard analysis plan. And something happened in like the few days that we worked together. We, it was like talking to a sibling from the very get go, um, sitting down with him and being like, what do you need? What's going on? And he was super honest, super upfront. He probably cursed a lot, but it was like, it was like sitting down and rapping with a sibling sort of thing. And we just got along. I got, for some reason we got each other as human beings and our communication style was similar or I could pick up his communication style and put it back at him. And you, uh, did he, he had noodle bar and had just opened some then he had noodle bar and some bar was a burrito bar. Right. So this is the, in the failing days of, I mean, yeah. Dave's talked about that yeah. when he almost lost the whole thing basically yep. before you guys figured out all yep. to switch some bar. And so then when he was going to, uh, Open Co. is when he asked you, and did they, so they didn't have soft serve yet? No, they right? had they, nothing. Right. There was no dessert. There was just a bunch of dudes, like renegade dudes, renegade row, running these restaurants. Yeah, the corn was the closest thing to dessert. So, yeah. The bacon corn was the closest thing to dessert. Or kimchi Brussels incredible. sprouts. Yeah. Oh, um, I, we hit it off. I wrote on this hazard analysis plan. I turned stuff around with the health department. And I had already given my notice at WD-50 because I had been there for a while and I knew I needed something else new to like round myself out. I needed to keep going and growing. Um, 
and he offered me a job and he he literally was just like late one night on a Wednesday night was like hey why like why don't you come work for me and in a funny way uh it just made sense there was no preconceived notion that it would be for dessert I think if anything uh it it most definitely wasn't to make food it was just it was like to help him in a management capacity. it was like to help him figure out everything from like running payroll to making sure like an office manager meets an operations manager meets a facilities manager Amazing. like i was doing crazy ground. shit like getting wasn't... stainless steel figuring out why an oven was broken and figuring out how to like custom fabricate a stainless steel panel so that it would Amazing. be warranty it would fall under the warrant like just really basic operational stuff that was just like mission impossible of like yeah none of us are going to figure it out and you you so you were doing that and you dove into that i just loved i loved the pursuit again of understanding this food crazy food universe on another level the best jobs are the jobs you work for people that need the most help and that are willing to give you as much as you want to like bite off if you're the kind of person you are yeah Yeah. but it's also great because like without even i know you were conscious about trying new things but you put yourself in a position to kind of like look at the whole business of food from all these different angles. Yeah. Well, I didn't know where I want. I knew. I mean, if you go back, the answer was always clear. But I wasn't so bullish about knowing it. I was more intent on like getting about starting my path and not about the pursuit of the finish line. And so how did the, because I want to get to my favorite thing, which is how you invented the greatest thing ever. (laughs) But before that, so did the soft serve start before Co or was Co first? No, the soft serve started before Co. So I was doing all these things, helping at the restaurants and it's, it's a bunch of dudes. They're like angry and rugged cowboys um, there's not girls around except for like maybe servers and they were be- they were definitely like, oh, you came from Boulay and WD-50 at <laughs> like, no, nah, right. yeah, don't they, even come well, near they, me. Well, these guys were do cooks. Not, do were... not even come at me. Don't come near me. And they were very clearly unenthused by my presence, even though there was no, um, threat to be had. And in the same way as like my Dominican brothers, I was like, okay, great. So I just have to, I just need like, like mission number one, figure out how to make sure these guys know that I will like effing run circles around them. And that if there's ever a question in their mind about my value or my worth or what I'm here for, that I will prove to them. I can't bench press more than them literally, but I will bench press twice Twice what they can bench press when it comes to work ethic and care and speed and all these other things. And so I did that. I just dug in deep to the business to do that. And at the same time, Dave saw that I was doing all of this um, and also like bringing in cookies that I baked late at night. And Dave knew my background and I think he had a little bit of a plan in his own mind And he kept trying to socialize this idea with me of like making dessert or like he would do this thing of like, oh, I'm trying to like figure out at Noodle Bar, like we're trying to get the average, you know, check up, like what, like, what do you think? And it was like, well, you should just put on the, obviously just put on a dessert. And he was like, great work on that, you know? And he would try and like delegate this stuff to me, like super undercover, like he knew he needed to trick me into it a little bit. And I started conceiving desserts for Noodle Bar, and all of a sudden it became very clear to me that these guys who were already unsure about me were like, 
okay, we do not have space for you in the kitchen. We don't want a girl in the kitchen. We don't want the, like the shishi, frou-frou, whatever, dessert. Right, because at There's the beginning, no I remember place. it was like blueberry with that crunchy stuff. Yeah. And stuff. That was like, were those? That, that was a thing. That was really early, right? That was, that was a thing. And they were just like, we don't have time. We don't have the attention. We don't care. And we are trying to get people like, you don't understand our business if you're trying to make dessert. So we need people in and out. people out. Did you have to figure out that little and, and people out? Did you have to figure out, well, we can put the machine in this little tiny spot? Well, first I had to think about like, well, what the frick dessert am I making that is just me? There's no room for me. I'm not around at dinner service. I am, but I'm worried about like the water coming through the ceiling from the neighbor that left their shower on ahead. Right. I'm not plating desserts. It's also not that kind of joint. And I just had an idea. The more I got to know these guys, the more I realized that they were really good guys. Um, and they liked really simple, really deeply delicious things like a fried apple pie from McDonald's or like an ice cream cone from Dairy Queen. And all of a sudden I was like, I had a moment where I realized soft serve ice cream. I came from WD-50. It was all about steeping milks and flavors there. And I, the way soft serve ice cream works is you make something in a really big batch, you pour it into a machine and it freezes itself as you go to pull it. So there's an a la minute aspect. It's super fresh. It's exciting to see. Soft serve comes out at 15 degrees Fahrenheit on average. So it's melting before it even gets to you. So you got to eat it quick. And it never touched the, the cooks, the lines universe. It was just like a, the general manager. Yeah, and the machine the was just over. Station. I mean, I remember when you the can machine see it. is it's over not the in side the kitchen. of the thing. Yeah. And, um, and I thought, I think soft serve could be a thing. And ice cream is kind of something that people don't say no to, including the guys that are like, well, whatever, even if this dumb girl's ice cream sucks, I can still like pour beer over it and make it afloat at night or whatever Well, yeah, at night the chefs could have it when they're hot in that tiny little kitchen space Yeah, I mean, we were all so young then. They're all incredible and have gone on to do incredible things outside of the Momofuku universe. But those moments are really, again, wish I I journaled it. No, but you did. You (laughs) have it in, in your head. So you do it. It's a big hit. I mean, I do remember there was the blueberry and another flavor. Yeah. Like probably, and then the crunchy stuff, and it was yeah. just like um, amazing. Yeah, thing maybe at the it's end like blueberry those. and sour cream. I can't. Yeah, um, yeah. We've had so many different. But this was like, really early. Flavors. Do you remember what the first two flavors um, were? I remember the first two flavors when we moved them up the street to 171, which is where Noodle Bar is now. The whole like the whole the only thing anyone could ever touch about Dave at that point was that the restaurant seats had no backs and he served no coffee. Those were like the two taglines back then. And so in a tongue-in-cheek way, I made this like insanely very expensive, deeply delicious espresso flavored ice cream and a sweet cream flavored ice cream so that you could get like your That's milk. Awesome. Do you take coffee with your milk with without. your milk? Yeah. How much or what have you? And then these really great like chocolate crummies. Very simple. One of the things that's like an obsession of my life, the way bakeries are, are to you, is the way people come up with great ideas. Um, uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about it and about uh, ideation. And I'm, I'm so interested in when they crystallize. And you told me at dinner that about coming up with cereal milk. And so, you know, this cereal milk ice cream that you came up with has been ripped off a million times now. <laughs> and by chains and by people. And um, But it is... It is one of those things that completely changed the way people thought about both cold cereal and ice cream. Yeah. And uh, there was nothing even close to like it in the world. You invented something totally new. Yeah. And it also paid off in this empire for you. So it all worked. Can you just talk about that night? Like what happened? Where you were? Yeah. You guys were launching. 
you guys were launching Dave's for uh, attempt at a real Michelin yeah. four star kind, you know, a four star restaurant, a Michelin starred restaurant, Mamafuku Co. And you wanted to do something different for dessert. And can you talk about the pressure and what was yeah. going on? So I had this soft serve program at Noodle Bar. I had a few uh, desserts on Sambar's menu, which was now this sort of like bistro-esque, like um, really fun, loud, rowdy, creative food as opposed to the burrito bar before its time. And we were going to open this tasting menu-only restaurant in the existing Noodle Bar space. There's 12 seats. We do two, two turns, so that's 24 seats. And the food was to be high-end. It was to be elevated, but elevated on our terms, not like I was stepping back into my shoes at Boulay. And um, of all of the things that I've said, I'm – all right, so I'm basically the de facto pastry chef, right? Like I've, I have been tricked into this role, um, Jedi mind tricked by Dave, and, and I'm happily there because I've helped build these restaurants and the pursuit is, is grand and great. It's a tasting menu-only restaurant, so the way that my like analytical mind thinks before my creative mind goes in is, okay, so – on the last course, the last two or three courses, um, it's tasting menu only, so no one gets to choose what they order. Um, if I know my fellow like chef and sous chef on the savory side well enough, they're going to crush those people with food. So no one's really going to be into the thought of dessert. They're going to be full. They're going to be, and their palates are going to be exhausted. And then in my, like, competitive, like, I totally get it. I look like this scrawny girl in a kitchen, but I am a force to be reckoned with way. I was like, and if I'm going to be really clear, I know I know that I live under the Dave Chung umbrella work for him. I'm competitive, and I'm trying to bury every great dish he has with making the best dish that someone's going to have of the night. So how am I going to do that? All right, well, people aren't – Everyone eats the same thing, so it needs to be a flavor that is not super controversial that everyone is going to get and everyone's going to taste. I think the best dishes that I've ever had are the ones that have been a surprise, but not in a way of like like rabbit out of a hat surprise, that have sat down, that are, that are simple enough when you look at them, but when you eat them, when you eat them, when you have that bite, there is this like insider, you're led into the secret world in this secret club and it's gettable. And it's not gettable because it's like this single origin tonka bean that's been smuggled in by Sherpas or whatever, like it's that it's gettable because it's gettable to you on your own terms when no one's looking, regardless of like your socioeconomic state or your education. It's what the pork it's bun was. Gettable. It's gettable. The, it's a sneak attack. Right. Yeah. Because it's so simple. And so I decided I'd make a panna cotta, which is like basically flavored milk that you set with gelatin, more or less, depending on how you make it. And I, we didn't have a lot of money, so we couldn't buy fancy equipment, which is why it was a panna cotta. You literally, it's flavored milk, some gelatin, a fridge, you're done. And I would plate it nicely. But I knew that this panna cotta was like, was my moment. And I knew that I needed to make it uh, that I needed to make it special, but I didn't know how to do it. I only knew what I didn't want to do, and I knew what I didn't like about panna cotta, which was that, like, you get it as vanilla, it's chocolate, it's maybe lemon, it's buttermilk if you're really lucky, but there was nothing more beyond that, and I had no clue what direction to go, and I had tried everything. I tried the simple stuff. I tried, like, the obvious things, and I knew, for me, that it didn't set That set feeling well inside where right. you were just like, You just that, know. That, if that you're your itch. own editor, you just, you know. And I was desperate. We were very close to opening, and 
this competitive mindset of mine was like, it was a very dark time. I did not know what I was going to do, but I knew I needed to figure something out. It was dark because you knew these guys were going to kill it. And then boom, you were the yeah. final thing. Yeah. It was also dark because the only time that I could recipe develop was two o'clock in the morning in the sambar basement. Cause that was the only time, like I'm last on the totem pole, which I, those are my favorite moments in life. Like be last, like be the underdog every time. That's where you have the most opportunity. But it was dark because you didn't get the facilities until two in the morning. Morning. Yeah, and to be honest, you don't need the facilities. If you're if you're the right person for the job, you don't need much, if anything at all. And I remember just kind of like shuffling my feet, like dragging my feet and feeling stressed out and unclear about what I was going to do and walking down the street to my favorite bodega to this day on 2nd Avenue between 10th and 11th streets. It's a 24-hour bodega and it's the kind of bodega that's just magic in New York City. It's not it's a bodega that somehow stocks everything like floor to ceiling it's magical if you haven't been that's it's a bodega everyone should frequent and I just I grabbed a shopping basket and I went in and I took my time and it's literally they have every brand and everything just one of each on the shelf and I just was like it was like I was going through like the library catalog system looking at every single like Dewey Decimal and going like would that taste good with milk would that taste good with milk would that taste good with milk and went through that in my head and I, I pulled stuff like I pulled graham crackers and I pulled things that uh, would I pulled Oreos I'm confident or something like well milk and cookies maybe it's cookie flavored milk and I was like that's too cute and precious that's obnoxious but I had these things in my grocery basket and as I was rounding the last two aisles the second to last aisle and it still remains in that bodega is just an aisle full of like powdered drinks and cereal. And and I just kept saying it over and over to myself in my head and I came upon the cereal aisle and I was like, would that taste good with milk? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, of course it would taste good with milk. Like that's how you eat cereal, duh, Christina. And I remember kind of like hesitating and then of all of the cereals, it's not the cereal that I personally eat with milk, but of all the cereals, I pulled down the cornflakes because it wasn't I wasn't trying to be cute or cheeky I was trying to like have a bigger idea I didn't pull down any other flavor of cereal That's the only cereal box of all the flavors of cereal that I don't know that I ever actually have ever even bought a bottle a box of cornflakes to eat um, but I grabbed that and I had all these other things and I didn't really know what I was gonna do but I knew I was gonna steep all these things in milk and make it into a panna cotta so I went back and I did that and the next day um I had a tasting for Dave and for the rest of the team and I was really sheepish I wasn't sure if it was a good idea or a bad I knew it'd either be a really good idea you said it might be you were like you knew you loved it but you had no idea I knew I loved it and I got it but I was like this is either going to be like way too kitschy cheeky or they just won't get it and they'll be like you're just weird get out of here um and I fed it to them with no introduction I gave them this plate with this panna cotta on it and I remember kind of scurrying away just the cereal milk you gave them just the cereal milk panna cotta none of the other I knew, right, knew. I knew but and you part ran, of the and process you just handed it to them and left yeah today. part of the process is just to like do the bad stuff before you get to the good stuff and I just said hey here taste this like it wasn't formal it was just like hey here taste this and there was no introduction and they were like what and I kind of scurried away and moments later like Dave he's such like a big presence especially in like a basement kitchen in the East Village comes like barreling back at me with his eyes like his pupils dilated his eyes wide open and was like what was that? Like, what was that? And I said, well, it was 
like, well, it's, and he was like, it's cereal, right? And I was like, yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it's a panna cotta made with cereal milk. And there was like that, it, it, that was the moment. That was like the lightning struck moment of, I knew it was interesting, but somehow I needed like my thought partner well, to be like, partner. this is like lightning. And didn't in a he bottle. say something to you basically like, we got to put this, this has to be. So we, we, it became this thing. I made it. It went on the menu of Co. And we have, you have friends and family in a restaurant before you open to the public and you invite press and so on. And we served it. I served. We didn't. I served it. And it was the thing that people were really excited about. And the second that those reviews started coming out and the feedback started coming out, I was like, oh my God, am I going to be like, not am I going to be in trouble? It's for the collective good of the team. But Dave just looked at me and was, and, and once those reviews came out, was just like, you need to figure out how to take this and make it into as many things as humanly possible. And you need to start now. Like basically like you need to start sprinting now. And that was in 2007, 2007 that he said that to me. He was like, you need to go now because people are going to come after you. And when did, you need to make it into ice cream and soft serve and milk and all everything. these things. Yep. Yeah, I love that. It's like... um my favorite kind of story because from that idea, and it's true, those that and the um, foie gras with the yeah uh, the frozen foie the gras, lychee, the, the frozen foie gras with the leaky and gelée candy thing. pine those were nuts. the two things that people wrote about basically, the, which and that also is like the surprise of the yeah. familiar and and so simple but and so but if you ask Dave in that moment, it's funny when you create things, you sometimes need someone else's perspective to be like this is insane because when it lives in your head too long, you don't realize if it's special or not. You need someone else to say this, get rid it's of all the rest of the It's an amazing story that you're confident enough to like try something so r- radical and presented in that way and that they recognized it. All right, we're going to do a speed round of the rest oh. of this because we're, we're almost out of time. And there are just a couple questions that I wrote down that I have to ask. One is how do you spot potential stars in your organization the way like that Dave was able to spot you. Do you think about I it? Ask Do you want questions? I ask for everyone's op- not. I don't sit in a room and say, "Everyone, give one by one, give me your opinion on this." But I like to ask random people for their random opinion on things because I like to judge the way that they are thinking, the way that they see our organization, the way they see the world, and the way they think. Do you have the ability to notice the next Christina Tozzi? Like, are you out there looking in your head when they're working for you? Like, oh yeah, that person is working super hard. Like, yes, they're you an can, outsider, you can but tell they're killing it. Without ever speaking to That's someone, by the way that they do their work, and you do notice by it. You're like, take someone down. and be like, well, you yeah, should that's like store. kitchen work as opposed to like growing and running the business. But yeah, you can see it in their eyes. You know, I you're you're. Your husband is one of my – I love your husband. He's Will a good one. Guidera. Yeah, he's an amazing <laughs> guy. And, um, you know, he – while you've been on this meteoric rise, he also – I mean, he owns the restaurant that just won – is now considered the best restaurant in the world. <laughs> and I'm wondering, as like, how – do you guys feed off of each other? Do you talk about this stuff at home or do you not? So we have Can, been married a year now. We met about three years ago and for the first – six, eight months of our relationship, we never talked about work once. And I think that is for, for two reasons. One, because 
uh, when you're when you're like the founder and growing your thing, it's very very like personal and internal, and you don't necessarily let people other people into your universe. And I think the other end of it was because we liked each other for who we were and we needed the escape from our crazy minds at work and we found this sense of adventure in each other. But now, once we like then opened the floodgates, it's awesome and incredible because you have someone that's like hurting and stressed out and neurotic about something and gives you the ability um, and the confidence to be to not be confident or the confidence to be neurotic or whatever it is you to can help be that process. With each other. Yeah, yeah, and it's awesome. awesome. Call each other out, challenge each other in ways that's like, I don't know, I'm not a part of your organization. I'm part of your home organization, but I'm not part of right. you know, anything else. But I have, but I know you and so I can see a part of you that sometimes you can't see in yourself because you're valuable. so deep in it. That's hugely valuable. And also you guys are just such a positive force i mean when i saw you guys out at the emp summer house just the the whole vibe of just like let's have a great time it is true what's it all worth lastly for now how do you define success for yourself now like do you consider it like okay i'm now super successful i've done it do you still have (laughs) like yeah because you're expanding i mean milk bar's going to la i mean you're there you know you are uh in uh, you're like on airplanes now and you're you know your brand is huge you're on television uh, you know, all my the time. success for me is really simple. It's like a temperature, my the temperature of myself that I take every day before bed. I did it. I did it last night and was just like, all right, how are you feeling? And it's it's like happiness at the end of the day, and that happiness is almost always, um, almost always comes from like, do you feel did do I feel the value of my contribution in the world today? And that's like the world of milk bar. That's like the world as a human being in the world. That's the world as like a daughter, a sister, a friend, someone that could help the rest of the food industry. Like, did I help someone figure out how to make soft serve base today? Like, do like how do I how do I feel about my place in the world today? Like, do I feel happy? Do I feel the value of my contribution mattered today? That's my honestly. It doesn't. I'm not happy otherwise, and like nothing else really matters. Do I feel the value of my contribution mattered today? That's great. <laughs> That's a perfect thing and a perfect way to end this. Christina Tozzi, thank you so much. Everybody, go to Milk Bar um, because the Milk Bar lady makes some great, <laughs> great damn desserts. Man, really does. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, where can people find you online? Milkbarstore.com. And on Insta? Uh, at Milkbarstore, at Christina Tozzi. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, see you next time. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Uh, you can also email me, um, themomentbk at gmail.com. You can email me about anything except don't ask for parts in the show. If you ask for parts, I won't respond to the email. Thanks. <laughs> Someone did that recently. It's okay. I'm not mad at you personally, but nobody else do it. <laughs>